How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the season 10, season 10, if you can believe it, premiere of FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I am your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, FOMO Sapiens 24-7. I am so, so pleased to be here in our 10th season. I just can't even believe it. And as you uh, might have heard on last week's Faux Mondays, I've been thinking a lot about what this season is going to be. Because last season, season nine, was really focusing around this concept of being a little audacious and getting back into the world after the pandemic. Big ideas, big moves, all that sort of stuff. I've been working on that, but then I just, one day I was sort of like, gosh, it's tiring. <laughs> And I think I've been talking to a lot of people. There's a little bit of fatigue out there. I'd say the mood in the world is it's a little bit beleaguered, let's say. I don't know. It's just a lot of stuff going on at once. And so that is why I wanted to focus this season on a concept that I think is going to be important. Something I came up with, a little something, a little something for you. The theme of season 10 is crush it without getting crushed. So the idea is, listen, we all want to do big things. We want to win. We want to take our own path to success. But at the same time, if you don't have the support, the balance, the perspective, all these sorts of things that are super important, you're going to get crushed. So you can't crush it if you get crushed. So you got to crush it without getting crushed. So that is the that's the theme. And I'm going to be talking about it all season. And I hope you like it. I actually really, really like it. And so I'd love to hear from you. If you have thoughts, just reach out. Maybe you have ideas of a guest that could be good for this. I wanted to start this season with a very, I think, a really important conversation. I met Olympian, marathoner, superstar, Kara Goucher 
recently. Uh, she came on and interviewed for the show to talk about her journey in the world of running and what happened at the elite levels of running where she was operating. And you know, she was in this very special program at Nike and then it really turned into a nightmare. All of her dreams were manipulated against her by her coach and she had to fight back. And she has written a new book. It's called The Longest Race Inside the Secret World of Abuse, Doping, and Deception at Nike's Elite Running Team. And so that's my guest, Kara Goucher, along with Mary Pallon, who wrote the book with her and is an incredible journalist. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the two of them. Kara Goucher is an American long-distance runner and two-time Olympian. And after more than a decade of a, as a Nike athlete, she's now sponsored by Ultra and Wazelle and is a co-founder of the Clean Sport Collective, an anti-doping initiative. She lives in Boulder with her husband, Adam, who is also an elite runner and their son, Colt. Now, Mary Plon is the New York Times best-selling author of The Monopolists and The Kevin Show. She co-wrote and co-hosted the audiobook Twisted, the story of Larry Nasser and the women who took him down, and co-edited Losers, Dispatches from the Other Side of the Scoreboard. She previously covered sports at the New York Times, business at the Wall Street Journal, and worked as a producer with the NBC Sports Emmy-nominated team at the 2016 Rio Olympics. Her work regularly appears in The New Yorker, Bloomberg Businessweek, NBC, The New York Times, Vice, and other outlets. Now, in this episode, we're going to be talking about, obviously, how exclusivity is used. This exclusive Nike running team, it was an incredibly powerful force to manipulate Kara in ways that she didn't want to be. And then, you know, how did she fight back? That's really what it's all about. We will also be talking about resilience and how one comes back from this type of crazy, crazy, crazy abuse. I want to talk about the dichotomy between, you know, when everything looks great on the outside, but inside it's a mess. How do you deal with that? So this is the kind of stuff we're going to get into with Kara and Mary. They're both great guests. You're going to love this show. I think it really sets off the season in a great way because at the end of the day, she had to learn how to take back control so she wasn't getting crushed anymore. And I think that's what Kara did. And she's just thriving now and also doing really important work. So that's what we're going to talk about. Now, my small ask of the week is spread the word about FOMO Sapiens. New season, new people. If you know somebody who loves running, send them this episode. Tell them to subscribe. Tell them about the show. I travel around the world. I meet people who listen to the show. And I'm so thankful for it. And all I want for Christmas, and it's Christmas in July, I guess, is more listeners. Because then the bigger the show gets, the more time I can spend on it. The more people we can have that are great guests, the more we can do for you, the better it can be. It just all grows from there. So that is my wish from you. All right, and now onto the interview. As you know, I start every interview in the same way. So I started by asking Kara this question. What's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? I think the formative decision I had to make was to stick with my own ethical mm. beliefs and my own integrity. And that meant leaving a running team I was on and also going to the proper authorities to report what I had seen there. Yeah. You know, that's, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, to get started, so, you know, I had been following your career and I'm a runner, not like as fast as you, but I try. And, <laughs> and, and so, you know, I, had, I was familiar with your story and I had read about it, but for those of you, you know, listeners who may not have come across your work before and your in your your trajectory, tell us about yourself, Kara. 
I am a mom and a wife. I was once an elite runner who ran into Olympic Games, who podiumed at uh, Boston and New York marathons, won a silver medal at the World Championships. But that's just a small part of my life, right? That was just like the racing part of my life. And now I care a lot about the next generation of athletes and making sure that they're protected, making sure that they are facing level playing fields. I don't know. I have a million jobs, my son will tell you. So I have a lot going on, but none of it's Well, sexy. you know what we call that? We call that being a FOMO <laughs> sapiens, doing a lot of things, sometimes maybe too many things. But now we do have something in common, by the way, Kara. I also ran the New York Marathon. I did not make the podium, but I did make it to the end. So, <laughs> so that's great. What 20, year did you I run? I think it was 2015. It was the year where there was a 20 mile headwind. Oh no, that was 2014. I ran that year too. It was yeah, awful. it was, it was a toughie. Uh, <laughs> I crossed the finish line and I simultaneously wanted to cry, pass out and get sick all over the place. And I sort of did all three at once. Oh, good. That sounds like a real marathon. <laughs> awesome. All right. So we're joined today also by Mary, um, who you together wrote this book uh, that has just come out, which is the story of what happened to you in the world of running and, and what you've done with that since. Mary, I want to bring you in here. What is the story that you're telling in this book? Sure. So I... Um, I read about this in the introduction. Um, I grew up in Eugene, Oregon. I love to run. I grew up around a ton of running. It's probably the sport. I've covered a lot of sports. Um, it's probably the sport I feel most comfortable writing mm. about in terms of just, mm -hmm. it, I just couldn't escape it. Um, so when Kara reached out to me, and I had covered, you know, running at the 2012 Olympics. And by the time she reached out to me in 2019, ProPublic had done a big story about Alberto Salazar and doping accusations. And Kara and her husband, Adam, were quoted in it. When she reached out to me four years later, I just thought, like, this is old news, right? And I, at that point, my career had shifted pretty radically. I had just finished a podcast about the Larry Nasser USA Gymnastics case. And I think anybody who's covered that in depth will tell you that that changes your life. You know, I, I just, in the podcast and since, argue it's the worst thing that's ever happened in sports history. There was a lot of, obviously, institutional failure, adults failing kids, etc. So when she reached out, I was like, I don't care about doping anymore, to be honest. Like, it just wasn't mm -hmm. where my heart was within the world of sports. And when she started talking, I mean, you take every phone call, right? Um, mm -hmm. I was like, oh, there's way more to the story. There's way more to the culture of running, of elite running, of Nike. And as we were talking, you know, and I've wondered this about other people, but especially with her, I was like, why is she coming forward? You know, typically the stories of malfeasance, be they sexual abuse, be they doping, be they embezzlement, financial fraud, the stuff I was covering before sports, they're always about the perpetrator. They're always about, Ber you know, we say the Larry Nasser case, we say the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. But I was like, what the hell makes someone come forward? Because we all want to believe that we're the person who would, you know, uh, have the courage to, to speak truth to power. But the truth is, and a lot of people who study, you know, the brain will tell you that we're, we're biased to not, we're biased to be complicit. So that was kind of the book that we set out to do is, or at least for me, is like kind of focusing it on Kara and telling her story. And that, you know, kind of, I felt like the Minnesota chapters, for example, which is the beginning of the book, were really important because I think a lot of the wiring, a lot of the DNA, a lot of the values, we talk about her grandpa a lot, like 
that to me was really critical in setting up all the stuff that happened later. So it was very different and unique to me to be able to do this as a book rather than as a newspaper article where you're kind of coming at the end of the movie, so to speak, right? So we set out, we just started talking. And then when COVID hit, I was like, well, nobody's going to Tokyo. So let's talk some more. Um, and from there, we developed a proposal and then the book. Wow. It is, it is, uh, what I always like get blows my mind is when you hear a story like this, it's like how many years of, cause like we all just think books come out all the time. You're like, you don't realize like, this is a labor of love. It's a lot. It's a lot of lifting. It's a lot of talking. It's a lot of emotion. It's a lot of digging into places that aren't comfortable. I want to get started in telling this story, Kara. I want to focus down into this Nike Oregon project because it, for me, as I think about the story, and you're, you're going to tell us it was, you know, so much of it is like, there's this really big opportunity. You are, you know, you're a runner and like, it looks great on the TV when you're at the Olympics and like, there's so much glory and the flag draped and all that stuff. But like, it's not sexy. As you said earlier, like, it's like, it's just like hard work and it's, there's not a lot of money in it. And like, that's why you always see like these commercials for Home Depot and all these athletes who work at home. You're like, Home Depot, that's nice, but like these are like, you know, is that is that really the thing? But you have to have the flexibility. So I want you to just start out. When this came to you, what was the Oregon project and what did it mean for you? It was it was a project that was started in 2000 to sort of revamp American distance running. Um, you know, the story goes that Alberto was watching the Boston Marathon, Alberto Salazar, and one American was in the top 10. And he said, I can't believe we're celebrating that. Um, and so he started this project to sort of bring back glory to American distance running. And so in 2004, my husband, who was a much bigger star, um, was invited to come out and look at it, see what he thought. And I was just sort of an add on. Um, and when we were there, it was it was running professionalized. It was, you know, we were still training with our college coach. We were it's funny you mentioned Home Depot because we were like finishing our basement. <laughs> like we were just normal people trying to make it work. Right. Um and when we went there, it was so professionalized. They had technology. They had so many doctors and therapists and all that kind of stuff. And I, like I said, I was an add-on. I was the first woman to ever join. And it was like, well, you can come too, you know? And so I didn't think of it, though, as like, oh, I'm the only woman. I thought of it as like this incredible opportunity. Like, I'm being given the best of the best. I get to do it alongside Adam. And I'm so lucky to be here. FOMO. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things you used to do in a day are taking a week. You don't have one source of truth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. Happy birthday. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close the books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind, so you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs. Those are key performance indicators in one efficient system. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know the show is all about making better decisions. And with this product, you can make better decisions because you have all the information you need right in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO to get your own KPI checklist. Because you know what? KPIs are better than ice cream. Netsuite.com slash FOMO. FOMO. And it feels like, you know, Kara, like it was this, 
there was so much mystique around it. Like whenever I read about it, because I, you know, I was doing my research on you, and it's like this highly secretive. They make it sound like MI five or something, or you know, it, it like right. And it's like what what was that about? Like what did it feel like that inside? Did you feel like you'd been led into the secret place and like all of a sudden like you know you were at Hogwarts or what? How was it presented to you? Yeah, it did seem like that. It seemed like like we. I mean, there were articles about it before Adam and mm. I joined in Wired magazine. They talked about how the athletes were living in houses that were pressurized to be at altitude. So there had been some articles like that. But when we were there, it was like, these are all the things we have. And and it was it was sort of secretive. Like we have all these things. We don't share all these things. You know, we were ahead of everyone. We're cutting edge. And it, I mean, I saw things on that visit when we visited that I had never seen. I had never seen an underwater treadmill. Wow. Um, soon after that, we got the first ever Alter G, a prototype, which now is used in the NFL. I mean, it's used everywhere now, but that's the anti-gravity treadmill. Mm. Um, yeah, it just was like things that no one else had access to. And we, we were like really protective of it. Like we are ahead of everyone else and we don't want anyone else to know what we're doing. You know, we call that FOMO generation. That's what that is. Uh, <laughs> and did it, I'm curious when you showed up to that place, like, did you just sort of, did it, I mean, obviously you're getting the best training, but did you have a psychological shift where you're like, okay, I can now, like, I'm, you know, you know, I'm going to, I, I could be like a huge star. Was there something that just gave you a new level of confidence? Honestly, when we first joined, I was a little bit nervous because I was like, well, if I can't succeed here, I'm not as good as I hoped I was. You know, it was like almost like a challenge. Mm -hmm. Like if I go here and have everything at my fingertips to keep me healthy and to train with, and I can't make it here, then all of my dreams that I had of going to the Olympics, like those were just fake. So at first I was kind of nervous. I knew it was a great opportunity, but I was nervous. But yeah, I mean, as, as you get into the culture more and more, you're living and training on the Nike campus, you're around all of these important people and you start to think like, oh, I, you know, we are special. Like people don't understand. We're trying to do big things. Like we really matter, even though, you know, it is just running. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's so true. Like there's a real power to that, to creating. I mean, you go to like elite universities, right? And they, they're telling the people like, you're going to be the next leaders of this country. And it does like, there is a shift where people think, well, yeah, I guess I, maybe I will be. Now, Mary, I want to talk about the psychology of this because you have studied, or studied, you've written about, you've, you're a reporter, not just a studier, but you've written about, you know, Kara's story, you've written about, as you mentioned, the, the USA Gymnastics abuse, uh, incredible story of like insane, just what happened there. As you think about the psychology of all of this, these elite sports with these people who give up everything and they are single-minded in their pursuit of making that podium, how does that play into the bad behavior that happens along the way? Yeah, it's a great question. I've seen it in a lot of sports, track and field, gymnastics, the NBA. I kind of call it, for lack of a better term, the priesthood mentality, which is this, mm. you should be so lucky to be here. Um, and a lot of people, you know, you could say what you want about athletes in different sports. They work their butts off. And once you mm -hmm. get there, once you get to that team, once you get to that league, you don't want to rock the boat at all. So it can make for, at best, high achievement and amazing sports. Um, at worst, it creates this culture that can be ripe for abuse and wrongdoing because you have people who are soaring but feel really disempowered, really, Right. And then one of the things with Kara's story, too, is obviously I was interested in her psychology. And, like, she also has a degree in it. So that made my job really <laughs> a lot easier. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, that's not true of a lot of athletes. So she had a very deep understanding of a, a lot of things. Um, 
but is like the system around it. So for example, this isn't just track and field, but we had to talk about Nike and the power that they have in the sport. So let's say that she did come forward. Well, I got news for you. Nike is the title sponsor for USA Track and Field. That's the governing body for the sport. Nike money uh, revamped Hayward Field, which is kind of like our the most prominent you know, track and field venue in the United States, if not the world. Mm. Um, so, so you have to kind of understand that that also shapes your psychology is that the systems around you are very stacked. Um, so, so yeah, I think that that also, you know, can create this culture that like makes it really easy to not only to not see things, but to just, where would, where would you go? Right? Like this isn't a a typical workplace. And even, you know, a company like Nike, one of the things I thought was interesting is that uh, athletes who are training on the campus were in this weird gray area where you have a Nike contract, but you're not an employee. So for example, Kara couldn't use the daycare center, but she was working on the campus every day and was on like their posters and stuff too. So I think that also shapes your psychology too, is like, what what am I doing here? You know, it's it's kind of an interesting, it's not a typical workplace. It's not a typical lifestyle. And I think that just permeates throughout every level of the story. I'm curious, Mary, like as a, a kind of an outsider looking in, you know, it's when you're in it, like everything feels like really important. Like I, you know, when you're like, I remember when I was an undergraduate, like everything feels so real and you're like so invested in like, you don't have the distance to be like, this is weird or this feels wrong. Right. As you heard, you know, Kara's story, Mary, like, did you have, I'm curious, you had like a moment where you were like, wow, like these guys, you know, they were able to like really, really manipulate people. Were there things that just seemed so obvious to you, but like inside the people just kind of didn't see? Yes. I think one of the things that made Kara unique, um, well, it's a long list, but she had a support mm. system outside of Nike and she had people in her life who loved her and didn't care about her times. Like they were proud of her. Like I'm thinking of your mom and your sisters. Um, and you had a supportive partner. And because Adam was also training there, he believed her and he understood it because he was also witnessing a lot of it. So I think that's also part of what creates a healthier relationship with your sport when you're like, I, I'm passionate about this. I love this, but I also know that this isn't the only thing that makes me, me. And she also came to Nike after college a few years. So she, you know, think about the difference between, you know, Galen started Galen Rupp, who was one of the Nike Oregon project stars. He started working with Alberto in high school. Kara showed up in her mid twenties. Think about developmentally, mm. the difference between being a high school student and having a few years under your belt after college. So, and she wasn't considered a star when she got there, like she said, you know? Um, so I think that that also changes things quite a bit, kind of where you're at developmentally. And that varies a lot for sports, you know, across the board. Um, so she had a pretty different base emotionally, um, which is probably why I think she didn't, you know, for lack of a better term, drink the Kool-Aid as aggressively maybe as other people who'd been in the project because she had, she had some perspective. I don't care. Uh, it's weird really to talk point. about you as if you're not here. <laughs> I know. I'm like, well, I did actually drink the Kool-Aid, but I, you know, at some point I realized it was, it was missing the sugar. Yeah, like exactly. I was like, oh, this is gross. You know, but I definitely drank it for a while. I don't think anybody drinks Kool-Aid anymore, unfortunately for them, but more, I'm more <laughs> a crystal light man myself, but let, let, let's, I want to get into this now. I mean, we're going to get a little bit now we're going to, it's, it's not so light anymore because we're going to talk. I want Kara. When did you, I mean, there's a lot of things that you talk about in the book that were not okay and that you endured and that like when you read it, it just feels, it's, it's like, you're just like, you're, you're, you just, you're sort of like scratching your head because 
it's so messed up. Um, but when, you know, tell us about when you realized things were, weren't good and share, you know, I, I know there's quite a few things you could talk about, but kind of give us a sense of some of the things that you experienced that, that brought you to write this book. You know, it's interesting because there was things that were obviously not right, right away, mm -hmm. but I just sort of justified them as like the path to the, to greatness, mm -hmm. right? Like nobody's perfect. I'm lucky to be here. Um, so there were definitely things right away that were weird. Um, you know, things I saw, there was a couple of things that we left out of the book, like just how much I saw my coach and things like that. And, but I think in 2006, we, it was the first time I traveled alone with Alberto, mm -hmm. my coach, Alberto Salazar. And, you know, we were in a hotel room together and that was the first time that, you know, I find out later it was sexual assault. I didn't understand it in the moment, mm -hmm. but, you know, I never even thought about, I was like, well, what, what, first of all, I'm in a hotel room in a foreign country mm -hmm. with my coach. Like, where am I going to go? Right. And then when I got back, it's like, well, I'm sure it, it had to be it had to be an accident because everything that Adam and I were working for then was ruined. Mm. So I couldn't even really mentally go there. And I just compartmentalized it and put it aside. And I think I did that a lot throughout my time there. There was so many things that I saw, whether it be anti-doping violations or just inappropriate behavior. But I just had to. What, what was I going to do? Where was I going to go? Also, as you we were talking about earlier, like I felt like I couldn't be who I was without Alberto Salazar. I mean, that's how far it had gone. So it was like, even if mm. I was unhappy, I, if I leave, I can't, I won't run well ever again. And that's why it's a little bit like embarrassing, or I used to feel embarrassed about it. Now I've been through enough therapy to know it's not my fault, but it wasn't until he actually tried to kiss me where it was in my face that I was like, I have to leave. I had put up with so much before that. And that honestly, looking back is like the least of the things, but it was in my face and I couldn't compartmentalize it. I couldn't put it to the side. And that was what finally broke me. And I was like, I have to get out of here. I can't do this. This is totally crazy. FOMO. FOMO. Wow. And yeah, because I, 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 you know, some of the stuff obviously completely inappropriate, but like in a setting where it's like, oh, I'm giving you like a massage after a run and then does, but you're like, well, was that an accident? So there was like, there's some, even though it's clear now, obviously at the time I can understand you're like, well, maybe that wasn't on purpose. But if you look at the pattern and one day you just kind of wake up, right. And it's like, and that was it for you. Yeah, well, that was my breaking point. But honestly, it wasn't until I left and started working through it all that I was like, wow, I was dancing around landmines the whole time, right? But I just, again, I I was so focused on achieving these goals and dreams that I had. And I thought that he was, he was the way I had to go to get there. And so it wasn't until like finally leaving, accepting that I had to leave, getting, you know, telling Adam we were together on together on the same team again. And then over a couple of years, sort of, you know, being stepped away, having a different coach, realizing how, how incredibly inappropriate that relationship was. It took me a while before I could really even see just how long it had been going on. Mary, you know, you've now, I mean, you have taken on, I mean, you've been called to write this book and to make the podcast about Nasser. And so, you know, it's a, it's a burden because these are stories that are difficult to tell, but it's, it's something that you've done and there's real service to it. As you think about with the patterns that you're seeing now, I mean, you've been able to see these bad people. There's a playbook, I imagine, 
that that they don't even like it's not like they're all talking to each other but there's a playbook like what did you learn what have you seen that way like for folks that are maybe going through this right now that are listening like what can we look for in these abusive relationships sure so i think karen did a really good job of laying out what a lot of people call grooming behavior right mm, so grooming yeah. behavior uh, which can happen to the person who is you know targeted by the, the assault, the trauma, but also to parents, to friends, to family members, to you have to create an environment in which abuse can thrive, right? So grooming behavior is often kind of, I think of it as like normalizing the abnormal. So one example yeah. is like, why was Alberto as a coach giving massages in the first place? You know, they're a massage therapist. This was Nike. They had all the money in the world. Why was a professional not doing that? Especially when at that level, you know, you don't want to screw up the massage, because technically, you know, like your body is your living, right? When you're a pro athlete. So to me, that was one example that I thought was really important to kind of talk about is because he started saying, oh, I'm just going to give you a flush. He started to normalize my ability to touch you, my ability to be alone with you. Like, and it kind of escalates from there. Um, you know, with Nasser, he would do similar things too, where, um, you know, he would build trust with parents. And then after a few appointments, the parents would say, oh, I can leave. It's just Larry. You know, I can just leave my my daughter there for her fifth or sixth appointment. So, um, you know, but it's it's and I think that's part of the shame in the Nasser case that a lot of the parents I interviewed, you know, felt is that they were like they got, you know, pick, depicted as these like really aggressive stage moms and stuff, mm. which wasn't true. The vast mm. majority of Nasser survivors were little girls tumbling in Michigan or young women in Michigan. They weren't on it. Like, yes, obviously the Olympic team and they're incredibly brave in terms of Ali Raisman and Simone Biles and their leadership, but most of them were not elite athletes. And so mm. I think if you're talking about youth sports or pro sports at any level, you just want to look out for like, what's the environment? What's the system? Who's around? What are the power? What's the power dynamic? You know, are are the athletes actually, what's the system for complaining if there is an issue? Um, now there's an agency called Safe Sport, which was created kind of in the wake of the Larry Nasser case, which ended up playing a pretty big role in Kara's story, um, which is kind of modeled after USADA, which is the U.S. anti-doping agency. And it's supposed to be a place where athletes can come forward about abuse, verbal, physical, et cetera. Um, and you know, there's a database of coaches that are banned. I and others have reported that the system isn't perfect, right? Mm. Like it doesn't apply to all sports. They don't have jurisdiction over a lot of things, but I think it's a starting point. And when I think about how these issues were covered, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, I think we've come a long way, but there's a long way to go. Um, another part that I think is interesting in track and field is that we're living in an amazing moment for women in distance running, you know, at every level of the sport. You've got grassroots participation. You've got elite women who are kicking butt internationally, Kara among others. And yet, like, we're not seeing that translate into coaching. We're not seeing that translate quite yet into executive roles at the major apparel brands quite yet. So I think that's also something that could help a lot too, is just having more former athletes and particularly women in positions of power where they are making decisions about how ads are Photoshopped, who gets paid what how things are shaped, the governance around these sports. So I think that's an area where there could be a lot of improvement because the, the talent pool is enormous right now, I think. All right, everybody, that's the end of part one of our interview with Kara and Mary. We'll be back next week to continue this story. But in the meantime, go find them on Twitter and Instagram. Lots of good content there. You can find them at Kara Goucher and at Mary Pilon. So uh, we will be back next week. Until then, take care of yourselves, FOMO sapiens. FOMO. 
If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO.